You're listening to the River Street Rundown on App TV, a podcast for students, produced by students. This is the River Street Rundown. Tune in to the River Street Rundown on WatchAppTV.com or your favorite streaming platform. I'd like to welcome our listeners and our viewers to River Street Rundown, a program that allows me as Dean of the College of Fine and Applied Arts to have candid conversations with industry leaders, campus leaders, distinguished guests, and visitors to our college. Today, I will be chatting with a visiting Mandela Washington Fellow. The Mandela Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders is a program of the Department of State from the United States. It's the flagship program of the U.S. government's Young African Leaders Initiative, or YALI. YALI was created in 2010, and the fellows range in age between 25 and 35, and they're accomplished innovators and leaders in their communities and countries. This is a very competitive fellowship. In fact, this year, over 40,000 applicants competed for only 700 awards. And I would like to introduce you to one of this year's distinguished fellows, Ms. Crystal Bonzo. And I have the pleasure of hosting Crystal during her time here at Appalachian State University. Now, Crystal, you represent the very best and brightest um, from your country and from the entire Sub-Saharan African region. So welcome. And I thank you so much for joining me and joining us for this program. Well, thank you very much for the introduction and I am so glad to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you and I'm so thrilled to host you. So will you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what has your journey been like to get to this point? Okay, so I'm from Zimbabwe. That's a country that is in Southern Africa. So we're a landlocked country in between four countries. So right at the bottom of Africa, that's where you find Zimbabwe. It's a beautiful country. We have the Victoria Falls, which is the largest waterfall in the world. Great people, various cultures. Um, I lived largely with my mom because my dad passed on when I was 12. So growing up, it's always just been me and my mom and my extended family. I did my education in Zimbabwe um, from the onset of it all till I got to high school. And then I went to University of Cape Town for my bachelor's degree where I majored in history, gender studies and politics. And um, currently, I am a sexual reproductive health and rights advocate, but mainly working with dealing with issues that are surrounding period poverty, particularly for women and girls living in rural communities. So my job really is to go out there and train and empower young women on how to make reusable pads and also to advocate for menstrual dignity. How I got here is a journey of um, resilience, a journey of support from the community around me. And when I say community, I'm starting with my mom, my family, extended family, my friends, my colleagues who have allowed me to shine in the spaces that I've worked with. And a lot of hard work as well. Um, I'm a very ambitious person and I always like to call myself an impact driven leader. So I think that um, even the communities that I serve are the reason why I am here today. And I'm feeling very grateful and blessed to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, let me ask you a question because we're here in this space in Boone, North Carolina, and I'm just curious, were you excited when you found out that you would be coming to Boone and to Appalachian State University? Because I know that there are fellows all over the U.S., and we are so proud at Appalachian State 
to be the only university in the state of North Carolina that actually hosts Mandela Washington Fellows. We were excited, but what were your initial <laughs> feelings when you found out you were joining us? So I'll be very candid with you. Um, I was uh, I was a bit shocked. I was a bit uncertain because um, back home in Zimbabwe, um, the America that we know, it's either Texas, California, New York, Washington, D.C. So when I found out that I was going to be placed here at Appalachian and I found out it's in North Carolina, I wasn't too sure what to expect because I, there's not much that I know about North Carolina. So I went on the internet, then I looked it up and I actually saw, oh wow, this looks like a cool place. Um, and it actually lived to the standard because from the moment that I got here, it was so incredibly beautiful. The air was different, it was fresh, the people are friendly and everyone is just always willing to accommodate. And I always go around telling the other fellows in other institutions that I am the one that got placed at the best university. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So I was going to ask, what has your experience been like so far? It sounds like it's been positive, but did you want to add anything to that? Yes, um, so it's been positive. Um, meeting with the various leaders from the African continent here at Appalachian State. So we are 25 of us and we represent 18 countries on the African continent. So it's been an exciting experience to learn about other people's cultures, their backgrounds and the work that they are doing and also drawing from inspiration on their work. So there's been a lot of synergies, a lot of you know inspiration, a lot of trying to work together for the advancement of Africa. And also the facilitators have been very helpful, even from the grant assistance. They're always trying to make you feel welcome and they're very, um, what can I say, they're very patient with us in trying to deal with us and understand this at an individual capacity rather than just, you know, grouping us all up together. So that attention to me and my work that I do is very important. I appreciate that. So, so far the experience has been largely positive. That's wonderful. Yeah. That is wonderful. Now, one of the things that I mentioned before is that the age range for the Mandela Fellows are 25 to 35. Mm -hmm. And I hope you don't mind me sharing with the viewers and the listeners that you are 25 years old. Yes, I am. You are among the youngest of any of the Mandela Washington Fellows that were awarded the fellowship. So what does that mean to you um, as a young, and I wouldn't even say emerging, I'm just gonna say as a young leader, what does this fellowship mean to you? It's a great honor. Um, it's a great honor to see that the work that I'm doing back home is being recognized and that the U.S. State Department is even willing to invest in my ideas and the vision and the dreams that I have for Zimbabwe. So it's a great honor and to be young makes it even greater because it's sort of like um, it amplifies, you know, what I believe about myself, about being an impact-driven leader. It's sort of like confirmation that I'm in the right space. You know, I am well endured to uh, impactly, positive, uh, impactly um, contribute to the development of communities. So it's an affirmation that I'm really grateful about because like you said, it's highly competitive and many people apply five, six times just to make it. And noting that this was like my first attempt. So it's a big deal. And I take it very um, largely to the fact that I am here because you know people are believing in me and I intend to make the very best of this opportunity so that I can also help others. That's wonderful. Now, will you be able to use the fellowship really to continue to build your leadership skills or how will you use this to underpin your vision for yourself for the future? Okay, um, great question. So definitely the, the fellowship is largely impacting me 
And I think most of our sessions are around developing ourselves as leaders. Mm -hmm. So um, I know it's only been three weeks into the fellowship, but I'm becoming aware of, you know, strengths that I had that I did not know that I had. And also, you know, my weaknesses that I need to that I need to learn to work on. So that betterment and advancement of me as a leader, I believe it can trickle down in the communities that I serve because, you know, when you know yourself better, you're best positioned to serve others because you know what you're bringing to the table. So I think um, the fellowship is going to help me to attain that level of self-awareness that allows me to connect and come up with solutions for my community. Wonderful. And as you continue to become more self-aware and think about ways to be a better servant leader, can you talk to me about who your role models are now? Who are your mentors? Okay, so my role models um, has to be my mom. Um, I mean, it's evident she raised such a beautiful young person like me, very bright. Um, but for me, she symbolizes um, resilience in all that she does. Um, she is my biggest cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Whether I am doing a Zoom, whether I'm trying to prepare for a presentation, she will stay up with me, encourage me, and reaffirm me to believe in myself. And I don't think that I would be able to be here if it wasn't for her support, both financially and emotionally as well. Mm -hmm. And then my second role model has to be Charmaine Picardo. So she was actually a fellow um, for the Mandela Washington in 2016. And she was also fairly young when she came um, in this program. She was actually still in university. Um, so I really admire her intelligence when it comes to issues around sexual reproductive health and rights, her confidence. She speaks with so much command on the issues that matter to her. And I look up to her because she's such an inspiration on the fact that you know you don't have to be a certain age to impact positively on the people around you you just have to believe in yourself know your craft and always stay at top of the game so that you are a voice a thought leader in the work that you do so I really do admire those two women in my life that's wonderful yeah so Shannon, I know this conversation, um, you know, you've been asking me questions, but I'd like to ask you some questions. And I think my first question is, I know that black women are underrepresented in higher education in the United States. I want to find out who have been your role models and mentors um, in those people, how, have they, how they've helped you to navigate yourself in this career. Well, I have to say, when I think about higher ed specifically, my first supervisor was a black woman. Um, and you have to realize that black women who are full-time faculty make up less than 2% of the entire professoriate. So it was very rare, it's still very rare, to have a black female department chair. And I was a very young professor coming in. Um, and her name is Dr. Gail Baker, and she's now a provost in San Diego, and she is still my North Star. Um, and even though I don't talk to her as often as I would like to, if I have something that I'm proud of, I call Gail. If I have a question, I call Gail. Um, and she has never once made it seem as if any of my requests, my needs were a bother. And so, I really try to model myself for others after um, Gail Baker because as far as higher ed is concerned and my profession is concerned, she was the first person that I actually saw in a leadership role who looked like me. Mm -hmm. I had gone through 10 years of university study and had never seen a black woman in a position above a faculty member and I'd only seen one of those. 
So um, it meant a lot for me to see someone who looked like me um, and who I was so proud to work for. She was strong, um, she was resolute, um, she was really a force. Um, but more importantly, I think what I learned the most from her is that she was kind. Um, and that's the kind of leadership that I'm really dedicated to, being a kind leader, an accountable leader, um, um, a dependable leader, but most importantly, a servant leader. That's great to hear. You know, you talk about representation and how it has helped you get to where you're at. But I'd like to like find out more on how exactly has it been, like your journey to being a dean? How has it been for you? Well, that's a good question because you oftentimes hear people talk about a career ladder. For me, it wasn't a ladder. Uh, my career has had zigs and zags and starts and stops, and I started in a profession. And when that work really came into conflict with my own ethics, and I believe someone's ethics lie at the core of who they are, I knew that I would have to pivot. And I think that as a leader, I would tell any person, when you find out a space is not for you, you don't change. You have the courage and the bravery to find a space that's a good fit for you. Because we all owe it to ourselves to be authentic, to be genuine, um, to offer our authentic selves to the people that we work with and interact with. And so it's really important to find the right space for you. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was not the right space for me. And it caused an absolute seismic shift and pivot for me. Um, and so just know that when there are times when you're unsure of, of where you're going, somehow, some way you end up in, in the place where you're meant to be if you always stay true to who you are, to your ethics. Okay, and I guess my next question is, what advice would you give to young women who would want to be successful just the way that you are? Well, I think the most important um, advice that I would give them is to be their authentic selves. Don't try to mimic any other leaders. Be the leader that you are, uh, stay true to who you are, um, honor your history and your roots. So when I come into a room, I am absolutely authentically me. And I am proud of who I am. I am proud of my heritage. You know, my mother grew up picking cotton in Arizona. I make that a part of my cover letter. You need to know who I am. You need to know the things that I value. Mm -hmm. um, I come from a strong line of matriarchs and also patriarchs. So um, I'm fortunate I've always had a very strong father figure, grandfathers, um, grandmothers, mothers, so just very strong nuclear families. That's important to me. Um, and so, you know, Crystal, one of the things that I always tell people, you're never going to hear me say that the workplace or the people I work with are family. They're not family. Um, but we are a part of a caring community. We support each other. We have each other's back. Mm -hmm. But my family is my family. And I don't come to work looking for those sorts of loving relationships. I want to be supportive. I, I hope that people will support me, um, but I think it's very important to recognize that for me and my culture, and that's what I bring to the table, that family is family. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, Crystal, for me as a leader, I would say be very cognizant of people telling you um, to have work-life balance. Um, because remember, when something is balanced, it doesn't mean that there's a yes or a no. It means that that weight is equally distributed across the scale and your life is that scale. Work is an important part of your life, 
What I would say is to make sure that you have an adequate amount of leisure time and work time. Mm -hmm. Both of them are a part of your life. And so how does that then distribute um, as for you as a person, you're the scale. You can't ever say, I'm separating myself completely from one or the other. It's a part of who you are. Mm -hmm. So that means you need to work in an area that you're passionate about, work for institutions that you deeply believe in. Um, and I'm fortunate, I believe in the mission of App State, I believe in the mission of our college, I am able to bring my authentic self to work and I have always felt welcome doing that. And that's what I would tell my younger self or young leaders, find the space that's right for you. Now, I have a question for you because we've been talking about what it means to be successful. Would you say that success looks differently here as opposed to Zimbabwe where you're from? Yes, absolutely. Um, and even though I've been here for a couple of weeks, those, um, you know, it's very different. Can I take it again? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I would say they are very different. Um, success is very different from here in the United States and in Zimbabwe. Even though I've been here for only a couple of weeks, I've been able to notice those differences. And in Zimbabwe, success is, you know, mainly about your material positions. Uh, so it's what car you're driving, um, which suburb are you living in, what's your occupation, um, you know, what bag are you carrying? Because society back home is more centered on what you can afford, what can your success get you. And then I come here to the other side of the world where um, success is more about self-fulfillment. You know, it's not tied down to a job, it's not tied down to what car you're driving, where you're living. It's about finding what matters to you and being comfortable living in that um, sphere. So I think it's very different in that regard in terms of success and how here in America, it's more about the self. If it's working for you, good for you. But back home, you know, success is so materialized that everyone needs to know that, you know, I have a car, I have a good job. So yeah, I'm successful. You know, I find that really interesting. And I think during this time, during the great resignation after COVID, people are really thinking in more innovative ways about what success means for them, what those metrics of success are. And you're right, I think they are becoming a lot more individualized. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked a little bit about the difference between success in Zimbabwe versus the US. But in your opinion, are the metrics for success different for men versus women? Again, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, so taking it back home to Zimbabwe, um, for women particularly, success is you know measured by two things: do you have a job, or you know do you have a business that you're running, and is it successful? Because now, when you have a job, when you're operating in entrepreneurial spaces, you're able to sort of garner like support and push your vision because that's how success is made. Um, and that's how success is measured because of your ability to influence. So again, it still goes on to like the materialistic, like mm -hmm. what qualifications do you have as a woman and things of that sort. And then here in America, I find that women are more liberal to choose and decide what success means to them. So it's not again tied down to what job you have or what qualifications you have. I've met amazing people who told me that like they have PhDs but they're so comfortable just being at home and you know taking care of the kids and they feel successful in that regard whereas at home when you look at such a situation if you are so well educated people are expecting you to be you know um, in this top 
positions where you are actually directly influencing decisions and being seen as a woman who is just at home and not doing anything you're labeled as unsuccessful mm -hmm. and for the men as well it's the same thing again things about materialization of things and here in america it's again about the self fulfillment so those metrics are very distinct and it's actually quite inspiring how much of a cultural shock it was for me you know to see that you could be having a conversation with a bus driver and you I can actually tell that they're doing this because they're passionate about it this is their life but back home a bus driver is you know looked down upon as you know blue collar you know you don't bring anything to the table so it was very interesting to notice those differences yeah interesting well, you know, Crystal, for me, um, once I pivoted from a professional environment to an academic environment, one thing that I knew was really important was that I wanted to use my new skills, my new research skills, to be a public intellectual, mm -hmm. to give voice to the voiceless, to bring people from the margins to the center, to have conversations center around those marginalized publics. And I feel like you do something really similar with your skill set as a a public health leader, um, as a reproductive rights professional. And will you share with me what you feel like are some of the most critical issues that are facing reproductive rights globally? Okay, um, so one that's particularly close to my heart in terms of our you know, reproductive health and services globally is the issue of health equity. So more often than not we actually see campaigns where it's always you know um, equal health for all equality in health and all of that but i'm more interested in health equity because equality has been you know positioned to be this blanket one shoe fits all for everyone and it's not the case because when you are dealing with uh, a patient and they're coming to you for service provision of sexual reproductive health and rights um the, the, I, the, the temptation is there to just categorize and say we're just giving out um, information and services, but they're different because no two patients are the same. You know, patients come in various forms. You know, they are differentiated by their gender, their sexuality, their social economic class, their location as well. And I think when we address health equity, we're trying to bring in everyone despite their differences and actually making services that are tailor-made to suit what they're actually seeking. So I find that, you know, when we actually approach public health with that eye of health equity, it makes it easier for everyone who is in the margins, like you say, to bring them back to the center mm -hmm. so that they're able to access health services that are suitable for them, health services that they can understand and participate in. Because in my country, in Zimbabwe, most of the health campaigns are in either English or Shona. And for the non-English and non-Shona speaking, you're automatically, you know, marginalized because who are you going to ask questions in your local language? And that again creates that barrier. So I think, you know, as researchers, as communicators, we need to work into fighting for health equity and realizing our privileges when it comes to access to health. Wonderful. Well, now, Crystal, I will tell you this. In the College of Fine and Applied Arts, we mm -hmm. are, regardless of discipline, just unilaterally and deeply committed to really creating globally astute um, community members. Our, we want our students to be able to have that 
global picture of the world, to recognize their place in the world, and to recognize that um, they can make a difference in the world. And as we in this college continue to train future leaders, um, hopefully young leaders that will look like you, um, are there any issues that you would say, you know, Shannon, as dean of the college, these are issues that are impacting young people. These are issues that will impact their ability to be a part of a caring global community. Um, are there things that we should be thinking about as a college so that we can enfranchise our students mm -hmm. in this way? Yeah, um, and I think for me it's just one. So you know how it's like um, when you are in a university, school, college setup, there are institutions, there are structures, and I've grown to know and actually experience that these structures and hierarchies create more of a divide than anything because you have students who are you know right at the bottom of the triangle and then you've got leadership at the top so what that then turns out is students don't have direct access to um, their superiors and the superiors don't also want to come down to the students to hear what their grievances are and what areas can be improved so I think that as Dean you need to make it a priority to sometimes come down and listen to what your students would want to see um, at App State. You know, it can come from whether their personal experiences, and they might actually form um, some suggestions, you know, and, you know, work together. So I believe in synergies because, like you said, App State is a community, and it would be even a better community if everyone felt like they were listened to, mm -hmm. that their voice mattered, and that we break away from these institutional barriers that make us fake, give each other our backs, and you know, so what that tends to do is when you give people an ear and when students feel like they're listened to, they're going to be you know, more productive, you know, they're going to be more open to following your vision as a leader because they feel included and they feel like they can be seen and heard. So I would recommend taking time to come down to listen to students and just having that open conversation, open dialogue that will influence change and push forward the vision of App State of creating inclusive leaders, you know, that are able to recognize that, yes, you can be in a position of power, but you also need to come down and be humble and listen to those that you serve. I think that is such great advice and mm -hmm. thank you for offering that. Um, and you said something that I think is really interesting that I, I have to highlight, I'm going to have to kind of circle mm -hmm. back to this. And you said it's important for students to recognize that their voice matters. Yes. And I just want to talk about how critical mattering is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have been at universities where there have been campaigns of belonging, where faculty, staff, administrators tell students uh, who come from different backgrounds, mm -hmm. you belong here. Yeah. And I have always um, been a little taken aback by that. And I thought, I don't need anyone external to me to tell me that I belong. Mm -hmm. If I've gotten someplace and I've gotten here on my own merits, I know that I belong. I'll find my place. That's internal. Mm -hmm. But what's more important to me is to know that I matter because mattering is external. Yeah. I need to know that I matter to you. I need to know that my voice matters to you. And I try very hard to let all of our stakeholder publics know that. But thanks to you and this conversation, I will. it will be front of mind for mm -hmm. me to ensure that students recognize that they matter to me, that they matter to our college, and that they absolutely represent the lifeblood 
of the College of Fine and Applied Arts. And I, I think our faculty are the heartbeat, mm -hmm. but our students are the lifeblood yeah. um, that keep us um, motivated. They're the reason we're here. Mm -hmm. um, and we are all energized by and learn from and with our students. So that will be front of mind. So I thank you for bringing that up and reminding me of that. <laughs> Most welcome. <laughs> And um, Shannon, uh -huh. I know that you have, you know, background and expertise in communication. And my question is, how does communication relate to the issues that we have discussed today? Mm. You know, I believe that communication is critical to the things that we've discussed. Um, it's important for us to share information, to make sure that that information is understood. Communication can give power and communication can take away power. And it's important to recognize that the words that you use can do that. And so for instance, if, if I said, Crystal, you're from a very interesting subculture. When the minute I say sub, that denotes yeah. that you're beneath, mm -hmm. lower than, less than. Yeah. I can also say, Crystal, you're from a very interesting co-culture, which makes us equals. Yeah. And our communication is important, words matter, um, meanings are in people and not in the words themselves. So we have to recognize that and be able to empathize. That's a big part of communication. And I, as a leader, am absolutely dedicated to being transparent. Um, everyone in my organization can see what meetings I'm going to, mm -hmm. the minutes of those meetings, the agendas for those meetings, everything I do is out in the open. I, I don't operate behind closed doors. I don't make backroom deals with handshakes. Mm -hmm. Everything I do is out in the open. And so I really use communication to build bridges. I use communication to empower. I use communication for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you come in with that mindset, um, it really changes the way that people will perceive you. Um, because communication, as I said before, can automatically give or take power. And you want to make sure that you are empowering people with the communication, the words that you use, the way that you use those words with your nonverbals. We believe our nonverbals over what people say. Yeah. So true. it's important <laughs> that we come to the table um, really intent on having a positive experience and also crystal i always tell people i have two ears and one mouth for good reason mm -hmm. i listen twice as much as i speak if i don't have anything significant to add to a conversation then i'm not going to speak um, but i try to make sure that when i do speak that i am creating sort of a deep and meaningful conversation mm -hmm. and i'm a part of that and, and a dialogue and not a monologue that's very powerful, you know, the whole thing of you having one mouth and two ears. I think it's very important even for young leaders all over to realize the power that we have when we speak, especially now with, you know, social media technology. There's a lot of, you know, misinformation that is put out there to push negative agendas. So thank you very much for, you know, articulating how, you know, communication can actually have good effect. Yes, absolutely. I would even go further, Crystal. You know, a lot of people have a lot of fear of speaking in public. Mm -hmm. And in fact, people will say, well, I'm more fearful to do that than to go to the dentist. So one of the things that I would um, offer to you as a young leader is when you have to speak in public, I'm gonna give you the advice that my own grandmother gave me. 
my big mama, who is my maternal grandmother, she said, Shannon, mm -hmm. a stranger is just a friend that you have yet to meet. So when you go into a room and you have to speak publicly, just imagine that you're among friends. And so, Crystal, you are an eloquent speaker. I think you're a thoughtful um, leader and communicator. And so I would just go one step further and say, as you speak publicly, just to remember that you're always among friends because people by and large are positive. We want to see you succeed. And I can tell you that you're always going to have a cheerleader in me um, here in Boone, mm -hmm. North Carolina. So the same way that Gail has been a mentor for me, I hope that throughout your career and, and our lifetimes together, mm -hmm. I can be that for you as well. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> it's my pleasure to do that. I think this has been a great conversation it and has. I wanna thank you for joining us. Um, I know that your time is so valuable as a Mandela Fellow, and I it know is. we had just a short window, so thank you for coming into the studio with me. Um, we're so thrilled to have you, and we hope that you continue to enjoy your time in Boone and certainly at Appalachian State University. Thank you very much for having me on this show. I was so excited to talk to you. You're such a breath of fresh air, and I hope that the conversations that we've had here today can inspire and motivate people out there, especially young people, to be great leaders in their communities. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. You're listening to the River Street Rundown on App TV. A podcast for students, produced by students. This is the River Street Rundown. Tune in to the River Street Rundown on watchapptv.com or your favorite streaming platform.